Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Women Scholars and Professionals podcast. My name is Anne Boyd, and I'll be your host. We at Women Scholars and Professionals are here to support women in their God-given callings into the university and beyond. So if you're a graduate student or a faculty member, an administrator or a student in professional school, a scholar in between jobs, or simply a person who supports women in the academic world, then this podcast is for you. In a world focused on marriage and children, what does it look like for single Christians to live lives of fullness and joy? Author Danny Treweek joined us on the podcast to discuss the ideas from her book, The Meaning of Singleness, Retrieving an Eschatological Vision for the Contemporary Church. Danny's research on this topic covers historical patterns and present-day questions and ultimately offers a series of practical suggestions and hopeful worldview shifts. This book is not just for single people. It's a book for all of us as we ask questions and enter into conversations about our relationships and the work of the church. I learned so much from talking with Danny, and I think you will too. And if you listen to the end of the podcast, you'll hear an excerpt from our conversation in which Danny debunks the popular understanding of the gift of singleness. So let me tell you a little bit more about her. Danielle Danny Treweek is the founding director of the Single Minded Ministry and an adjunct teacher at Moore Theological College in Sydney. She also serves as both the Diocesan Research Officer and a member of the Archbishop's Doctrine Commission within the Anglican Diocese of Sydney, Australia. So let's dive right in. We're so glad you're here with us. I want to talk about your book, The Meaning of Singleness. But first, I would love to hear about your life in um, in theology and as a theologian. So our listeners are mostly women who are connected with the academic life in one way or another. So I'm interested in centering our conversation there, um, at least in some parts. So can you talk a little bit about your path into theological study? Yeah, absolutely. Um, my first uh, round, I guess, of theological study was when I was quite a bit younger now. Um, I headed to, so I'm in Sydney, Australia, um, and so I, I studied at Moore Theological College, which is the um, the Sydney Anglican Diocese Training College uh, Seminary, as um, might be more familiar language here in Sydney. And I studied a Bachelor of Divinity there, which is a four-year full-time program. Mm -hmm. um, and one of the unique things about Moore College uh, is that they are very um, much based on learning in community. So I lived on campus for four years in um, uh, in an accommodation centre with a lot of other single women. Mm. Uh, and that was just formative and foundational in so many ways. And, you know, the relationships that I formed there, not just amongst the single women, but amongst the um, the student body and the faculty have just been remarkably significant for me in the years to come. I went to do theological study anticipating that I'd actually be going into church-based ministry. And that's what I did. I did that um, uh, for, for almost seven years. And I expected that that is what I would be doing for essentially the rest of my working life. Mm -hmm. But um, 
at the same time, I had an interest in doing some reading and writing on singleness. Um, I, I just had an a hunch that there was more to say that we hadn't yet said, mm -hmm. but I wasn't quite sure what it was. Um, and so when I finished up my my the role that I was doing at a particular church, I decided to take six months off to finally write this book on singleness that I had been wanting to write, but very soon realised I need to do the proper work here to write a book that's actually not just going to be another book on singleness that's sitting on the shelves. And so I somehow found myself starting a PhD on singleness in, in fairly short order. This all happened. And I had never had any intention of doing a PhD. I'd always been academically inclined, but um, PhD had just not been on the horizon for me. Um, and suddenly I found myself doing doctoral research in order to write a book. Mm -hmm. uh, that was the whole premise. Um, but what's been fascinating to me is I expected that I would complete that doctoral research, write the book, then find another church ministry job, particularly ministering amongst women, but not only women. Um, and that hasn't been God's plan for me. He's um, He's kept me in this kind of world of theological academia that I didn't really even know existed outside of kind of my immediate context and still finding my way through that. I call myself a bit of a theologian at large. I'm connected to a few different seminaries and Bible colleges, but um, I'm not on I'm adjunct at them rather than on faculty at any of them, but I'm engaging in ongoing academic research and writing. Uh, and that's been a bit of a revelation to me. I hadn't expected that that is where I would be a couple of years after finish my, finishing my doctoral work. Well, that I think that lines up with the experience of a lot of our listeners, you know, getting mm. um, getting a degree and having maybe an expectation of how it would go and then finding yourself in a new space. Yeah. So, what what for you have been some of the gifts of your life as a theologian and what have been some of the challenges? Well, I mean, I've in one sense I've been a theologian all my life, as all Christians are. You know, we all we're all theologians in that sense. Um, but in terms of the more formal sense of I it's as I sort of just indicated, it's been a bit unexpected in a way. And so I feel like I'm kind of behind the eight ball. Oh gosh, here I am. I'm suddenly actually engaging in robust theological discussion and you know I, I sense this is probably a case for a lot of women maybe some men there's a you know there's a deep uh, sense of imposter syndrome that comes along with that at times mm -hmm. so how have I sort of found myself here um, I'm getting better at actually realizing no 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 actually you have a seat at this table mm -hmm. um, you know you you have put in the hard work you do have skills and expertise you've got a lot more to learn but that's the point isn't it of engaging here um, academically theologically so, um, you know, I'm just loving engaging at a kind of deep level. Um, I love pastoral ministry. I love coming alongside women, particularly discipling them, having strong, robust relationships with Christian men, but actually being able to be engaging in deep, kind of wrestling with deep questions of theology Um and and identity and community has been an incredible blessing and privilege. Yeah. Mm. Well, that the work that you have done really comes through in your book. And so let's let's dig in and talk about the meaning of singleness. Um, I really loved reading it, your writing and your research, and your explanations are all so rich and comprehensive. And I I just learned so much. So thank you. Yeah. Thank you for writing it. Well. I'd like to start by asking about the subtitle of this book. Mm -hmm. um, the, the full title is The Meaning of Singleness, Retrieving an Eschatological Vision for the Contemporary Church. And 
after I finished my reading, I could see and understand that this subtitle is really perfect. But before I read it, I had kind of only a vague sense of how these ideas fit together. So let's start with the idea of retrieval. Theological Mm -hmm. retrieval really holds a central place in this book, and it has been a powerful tool for your own study. And Mm. so can you say a little bit more about retrieval, maybe even giving a definition of it and what readers today can learn from ancient theologians? Yeah, um, it's it's really interesting. You know, as I said, I kind of went into this doctoral research thinking I've got a hunch, but I need to work out if that hunch actually has legs. Uh, And so I sort of just started and I really was about at least 18 months into it and still a bit unsure. I was writing stuff. I was learning lots of things. I was still a bit unsure of what actually I was doing. What was my methodology to kind of follow through on this hunch? And it was one conversation with my doctoral supervisor uh, where he he happened just to mention um, a, a word which was resourcement, um, pronounced with a French accent. I'm not going to even try and do that. But it was um, a particular, I understood to be a particular Roman Catholic approach to actually looking at what had been written uh, by Christians in the past. And so I went, oh, that's interesting. And so I just started pulling that thread. And I discovered this whole discipline of theological retrieval that I just had been unaware of in a formal sense. And I realized, oh, This is what I'm trying to do, but I need to actually understand the principles of this methodology better in order to do it well. Um, And so theological retrieval, it's in some sense, it's it's very ordinary. It shouldn't be something new or surprising or shocking to us as Christians. It's actually just recognizing that God is God works in human history through people in human history. At different, all through different points of human history, um, his spirit has been at work by his word, and that actually those who have preceded us, those who are our brothers and sisters in the past, actually have great wisdom to offer us. There are riches that they have engaged with at their time, in their place, with the issues that were of concern to them, that actually are not just relevant to us today, but have deep significance for us today. And so theological retrieval seeks to to draw from the riches of Christian history um, for the sake of Christian life and ministry and thought in the present. But it does that in ways that recognise all of the limitations that come with, you know, engaging with people from different times in different places, that we actually are not blank slates ourselves. We're deeply embedded in our own cultural moment, in our own historical moment. And so we we need to allow those from the past to challenge us in the present, just as we look back at the past and go, oh, there's things here that just don't make sense to me. So it's not about taking the past. And um, one of the words that I really liked, I can't remember who used it. Someone talked about it's not taking the past and repristinating it. So it's not taking the past and seeing it as pristine Mm -hmm. and then just wanting to impose it on the present. It's actually seeing the past as a resource for the present. That, that is a, that's a great definition. That's really helpful. And so, I mean, it seems like anyone who reads, um, you know, the, St. Francis or St. Teresa of Lisieux, like that, that you're doing in a, in a, in a very minor way, theological retrieval by studying those ancient saints 
Yeah, if you're studying them. So there's a difference between, so I love history. I've always loved history. So it was natural for me to kind of look to history in that sense. But there's a difference between doing church history to understand history um, and then actually seeing history as having relevance for the present. Mm. And so I think historians actually tend to be quite instinctively very good at this, that they Mm. recognise history isn't just something in the past. Um, But theological retrieval is works... um, arises out of historical study but isn't synonymous with church historical study there's there's another step involved there in sort of the hermeneutical transfer into the present moment okay okay well that that helps me to understand that word even even better now and um so let's talk about the second part of your subtitle which is the eschatological vision for the contemporary church and, you know, connecting eschatology with the way we discuss singleness today can feel like a stretch, but it really makes a lot of sense in your book. So can you talk about this relationship? Yeah, absolutely. This was my hunch. My hunch was that if there was something that was missing in our theology of singleness today, my hunch was that it probably had something to do with thinking eschatologically. Mm. Um, and that that arose, I explain in my in my um, introduction to the book, that was a spark that was lit for me when I was studying in my third year at Moore College when one of my lecturers, who then ultimately became my PhD supervisor, um, kind of, uh, he, he talked about how in Matthew 22, Jesus teaches that we will not be married in the new creation. We, there won't be husbands and wives that marriage is for this earth only. And it was like a little light bulb went over my head. I thought, oh, there's something here. If, mm-hmm. if for, you know, lack of a better term, we're going to be single in, in eternity, then that probably has some significance or at least should have some significance for how we think about singleness in, in the now but not yet as we live as Christians after Jesus' first coming and before his second coming. Um, so that was my hunch. But I really thought there's, I need to follow this through. I need to test this and check this out. What um what shocked me in a, a glorious way was that until basically about the Reformation, Christians, that wasn't a hunch for them. That was stated plain obvious fact yeah. that what we call singleness, and they had all sorts of other words. The word single didn't even appear till about the 15th century, but their understanding of the unmarried life, of the virginal life, of the chaste or the celibate life was deeply theologically linked in with their understanding of the new creation and its impacts for us today as Christians. I was was amazed at how rich the inheritance there was, but I was just so depressed about the fact that we have lost all of that. Yeah. It just, as you said, well, it feels a bit like of a stretch to kind of link the unmarried life with the eschaton. For the early church and really the medieval church, it was blatantly obvious um, and, and we've lost that inheritance. Wow. Wow. Well, you um, you really delve into these ideas richly in your book. So let's, let's I just want to walk through um kind of, it's, um, it's really just a bird's eye view. I, I, I just, I have some questions. So sure. let's, let's start by talking about the contemporary church and your description of the church today and the way singleness is viewed really highlights the theological inconsistencies and just the nonsense ideas that are widely held. So can you say a little bit 
about some of the common misconceptions people have about singleness and its place in the church? Yeah, I am. Um, you know, I started my PhD going, what on earth am I doing? How do I do a PhD? And I thought, all right, first, the first thing I need to do in that first couple of months is just start reading and understanding the landscape that I'm, yeah. I'm wanting to kind of address. And so I actually spent almost, almost a year reading every sort of Christian resource book, article, whatever I could that had some relation to singleness, listening to every talk or podcast um, that I could just to kind of, you know, I, I came with a particular understanding of how I thought the church generally thought about singleness, but I wanted to actually make sure that I had understood that properly. And of course I had to I had to limit, you know, when you say the church, what is the church? You know, it's it's huge. I had to limit it to a particular um, set of boundaries and coming from a, a Western Protestant reformed evangelical context, that's kind of where I went. Um, and so I spent that first year basically reading everything I could and trying to have a bird's eye view of what was going on. And by the end of that time, I had a massive, massive mind map so I had never done mind maps before. Mind maps saw me through my PhD. They were how I wrote my PhD. I had a massive mind map of everything that the contemporary evangelical church thinks about singleness, and it was really depressing. <laughs> um, it was things like, you know, that um, I had all these quotes and I kind of put them under headings and I had, you know, things like it's it's seen as a deficient um situation in life you know to be single is to be not married um you, the single person is defined not by who they are by who they're not they're not a husband mm-hmm. they're not a wife um you know it, marriage is the normal state and so singleness is abnormal um for some they see singleness some leaders these aren't just kind of you know peripheral people in the discourse these are key leaders see singleness as ab- it's deviant. It's even dangerous. It's an attack on marriage. Um, singleness is uh, seen as a very unfulfilled way to live your life, um, romantically, sexually, relationally. Um, you just you're missing out on the fullness of what life can be in those areas. Is what people, what Christians say. Um, there's a, a sense in which um, singleness is kind of purposeless. Unless unless you're living the good single Christian life, you're not your singleness isn't seen to be good. It's very much defined by the goodness is very much defined by how you feel about it and how mm-hmm. others perceive it, rather than actually that state of life itself having inherent dignity and purpose. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's just a, I think a pretty consistent sense in which singles single Christians feel marginalized in the church that we kind of sit on the periphery on the margins. As, as sort of welcome guests rather than as core family members. Um, so in my book, there's two whole chapters exploring all yeah. these themes. <laughs> it is pretty depressing reading. Um, <laughs> but to sum all of that up, I, I at the end of that, I thought, okay, there's two major tendencies going here. The first is that our approach to singleness is very much always looking over our shoulder to Genesis rather than actually seeing uh, what lies ahead of us as well in the mm-hmm. new creation. And the second one, the second major trajectory, I think, is that we just don't realise as contemporary Christians how deeply formed we are by the world around us and a lot of its ideological commitments. Um, so they were the two big problematic tendencies I identified in the end. Yeah. And, you know, one of the things you point out in your book as well is that the 
culture around us often seems to treat single people with more dignity than the church does, that there's, mm. there's more of a, a place for people who are single. And what, you know, what, what, how, how do you think that has come to be? Yeah, and I mean, that's certainly very much a contemporary problem. Um, it's really been in the last 50, 60 years that I think a lot of that has come because the world has changed a lot since the 1960s and the church um, has at times very rightly and importantly pushed back on unhealthy, ungodly, unloving commitments that have been developing in the world. But <clears throat> What that has, one of the things, there's many things that have resulted from that, but one of that has been, I think, an, an idealization and an idolization of marriage mm -hmm. and kind of the modern concept of the, the sort of isolated nuclear family as the Christian way of life. Yeah. Um, you know, we could talk about that endlessly too, because again, history has so much to teach us. Yeah, I think people would be astounded if they understood just how novel and unique our kind of late 20th, early 21st century take on marriage and family actually is. But particularly evangelical Christians, I think, are pretty ignorant to that historical reality and tend, you know, argue that kind of this 1950s vision of marriage and family is the Christian vision. And so singleness is literally seen to be kind of an assault on that. It's, it's yeah. you know, the, it's it's deviant from the Christian way of life. Um, and so Christians, sorry, singles tend, single Christians tend to be tolerated, um, but not celebrated. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, let's, let's talk about, so the middle section of your book explores the way singleness has been discussed in church history. And mm -hmm. then you also talk about a couple of key texts from scripture and then you look at um, at this issue through the lens of four Christian theologians from different um, historical eras. So as I read through these sections, I mean, it's a big chunk of your book. Um, mm. I noticed that the virtues of singleness and marriage have been fought about for centuries. People have very strong opinions and they kind of flip flops. Yeah. And so can you point to a few places in your study of history and theology that can help just the ordinary listener get a sense of the complexity of these issues over time. Mm -hmm. Yeah, those chapters are really the the engine room of the book. It's where all the theological retrieval is kind of is is you know based. Um, and you're right. The, this this the course of Christian history of church history has been, I imagine, a bit like a pendulum on this matter on singleness and and marriage. And you've got, you know, if you imagine a pendulum with marriage up one end and singleness up the other, we just as Christians seem to be swinging wildly between one end of the spectrum and the other without it just settling nice and evenly in the middle, um, which gives me a bit of, you know, it makes, I'm a bit of a pessimist by nature. And so I kind of go, gosh, if we haven't got this right in 2000 years, how on earth can we possibly try and get, you know, have any expectation that we'll get it right now? But my my optimism, my pessimism is countered by the optimism of God's word where, you know, for example, in 1 Corinthians 7, the Apostle Paul has no problem saying marriage is awesome, singleness is excellent. These two things are true at the same time. So if the Apostle Paul can do it, I figure it's worth aspiring to. But broadly speaking, um, uh, the yeah, the early church um, 
it even in itself, different centuries kind of had different swings of that pendulum. But, you know, if we're going to talk broad overview, and particularly in the later decade, centuries of the early church, uh, they developed a very, very high regard for what for them was the virginal, particularly the unmarried, but the virginal life. Um, Institutional celibacy hadn't really even developed by this stage. It was, you know, a later early church and certainly medieval development. But for the early church fathers, um, their focus was really on uh, the theological significance of virginity in light of the age to come, in light Mm -hmm. of the fact that they, I think, really were agitating that this world is not all there is, that this world is passing away, that there's, you know, we're living in light of the, of the, the new creation to come. That had really significant implications for the way they thought about both marriage and not being married. Marriage, they saw, was very much a part of this world. Mm. Um, and there were differences between whether it was a really good part of this world or a not so good part of this world. But for them, it was this age. That's And virginity was the next age. Um, and so I think we can be tempted to kind of reduce the early church's veneration of virginity to kind of influence of, you know, Gnostic thought where, you know, the body was bad, sex was dirty. And sure that, you know, there's elements of that that you can pick out, but the huge factor for them was actually the eschatological significance of not being married. Um, The medieval church, you know, as things became much more institutionalised and sort of the ecclesiology uh, developed in all sorts of different ways, um, they continued to have uh, eschatological significance for singleness. But again, celibacy then became much more linked with kind of the institution of the church and all sorts of, you know, complex and I think um, destructive uh, things were linked in at times with that institutional celibacy where the the celibate priest was the one who became the mediator between man and God. You know, celibacy was core there. There was a real distinction between the celibate hero and the the very ordinary married person. Um, And so even as there's theology going on there that we still need to, to dive into, there's other complicating factors. And then the Reformation happened mm-hmm. and essentially... <laughs> All of that went out the window. <laughs> um, and there were very important things in the Reformation on this. Don't get me wrong. I think um, the, Reform- the the Protestants' um, uh, argument against marriage as a sacrament was very theologically significant. Um, but what we actually saw was um, not just a a rediscovery of marriage, marriage's theological significance in a renewed way, but a, a real diminishment of the alternative that is singleness's significance to the individual and the church. And um, we saw, I think, we we began to see the beginning of a bit of a zero-sum game yeah. where if you elevate marriage in the Christian life, there's kind of this automatic diminishment of singleness. And the last 500 years has continued in that trend, particularly, this is where I think history is so important. There's been all sorts of social and cultural developments that have actually come hand in hand with Protestant theology that have actually led to where we are in the early 21st century. Um, so it's not just blame the reformers. Um, that's right. not the case at all. There's, there's, It's a very complex interaction between theology 
being embedded in particular social and cultural and mm-hmm. historical moments. So yeah. sorry, that's a very broad overview, um, but it's it's incredibly complex when you start delving into it. Yeah, and no, it is. And you summarized it. I mean, there's a lot in those chapters and you've summarized mm. it beautifully. Well, let's think about, I'd love to talk about how the church can move forward. Your book really offers a refreshing way to think about singleness and about marriage as well. As you said, there, it's it's less of a zero-sum game, but you put forth an idea that neither is good or bad, but instead each state is a beautiful image of our future hope with God. And the standard you hold up is beautiful, and it is also so very countercultural. So how do people get there? What, what bridges do you think are needed to help the church in this journey? That is a great question. Um, In one sense, I want to say, you know, there's, we need to be far more pastorally sensitive to single Christians. We actually need to be committed to loving them well. Um, we, We, you know, if we don't have the love, then all the theological truth that we can have is irrelevant. Because we can have truth if we're not willing to actually act on it in love, then what's the point? And so I think there is a tension here between we need to have one of the bridges is a commitment to actually want to genuinely love and honour the unmarried person. And probably something I should have said at the start, which I always forget to say, when I talk about single, I'm not just talking about women like women and men like myself who have never been married. I'm talking also about those who are um, single again, whether that's through divorce or widowhood. And even within each of those broad categories, there's all sorts of unique complexities and circumstances. So I'm using it in a very broad term. And so I think the church needs to, one of the bridges is a commitment to go, these men and women are as much a part of us as the married person is. Mm-hmm. We need them as much as we need the married person in our in our midst. Um, and if we have that love in place, that's foundational to actually bringing about change that's reflected in loving practice. But just as we need love and tr- we can't have truth without love, I don't think we can have love without truth. And by that I mean I think we really need to be willing to grapple with how poor our theology of singleness actually is. And one of the, the, you know, the corresponding truths of that is that actually our theology of marriage is pretty wacky. Yeah. You know, we actually have to be willing to confront this golden cow in the contemporary evangelical presence of how we actually think about marriage as I think an idol in ways that we don't realize that is the the bridge that is going to be the hardest to cross because Mm -hmm. there is so much immediate visceral reaction to pushing on that on that door um you know I'm aware that even in just having written a whole 300 pages on a theology of singleness many many people in the evangelical Christian church will instinctively think that I am down on marriage that, you know, I'm wanting to, and that is, if you read the book, I mean, you've read it, you, you oh, yeah. know, that's not the case at all. Not at all. But that is the the starting premise in the conversation we're at the moment, that if you really want to say, hey, we really need to talk about singleness here, that means we really do need to talk about marriage as well in ways that 
we are going to find uncomfortable and challenging and I think a bit rebuking at times. And that's that's the tough bridge that I think that's the really steep, long bridge that we look at and go, oh, that looks too hard. I'm just going to yeah. back away from that now. Um, but that, that that's where I end the book with this. And it really was a realisation for me towards the end of my study that actually we don't have a conversation about singleness over here and one about marriage over here. We're actually having the one conversation yeah. about singleness and marriage together and that's actually the way forward, I think. Yeah. So I want to ask you a question that is um, it's specific and um, it kind of brings it down to a grassroots level. So these we hear comments from our readers and listeners that really make a lot of sense in our current cultural context, but I'm I'm curious to know how to build those bridges. So the comments we hear are things like, well, guys aren't interested in me because I'm too smart, so I can't find an, a you know a date or someone to to marry. Or um, I missed the dating window because I had my head down working on my degrees, and now here I am with a PhD and no one to marry. There's this real grief over being single. And mm. so, how do you respond to someone with concerns like this? Because it seems, I mean, we the the loving part that makes a lot of sense. And then there's also this worldview shift that is needed. We And we don't want it to sound rude to say you're thinking about it all wrong, but yeah. there is something to be said about that, that our whole culture and our whole, our whole, the church across the world is, is thinking about it in, um, mm. in ways that need help. So how, how would you start? Mm. Um, I, I would start by saying, I get it. You know, mm. I, I, rem- I, I'm in my, I'm still going to claim early 40s now, um, at least for another two months before my birthday. Um, I remember being in my 20s, my early 20s, then my mid 20s, and then my late 20s, and then my early 30s thinking, oh, I feel like I'm missing the boat. I'm missing the boat. You know, I want to jump on this boat, but I'm not sure how that happens. And everyone else around me seems to have been able to get onto it. And so I I deeply personally empathize Mm -hmm. with that, that sense of, hang on a second, I feel like that may have passed me by because I was, you know, focusing on this or because there weren't many single Christian men around, you know, all sorts of things. And I think two things, that is part of the reality of the time and the place that we live in, particularly if you're a single Christian woman. Mm -hmm. Um, There there are many more single Christian women than there are single Christian men. So that's, Mm -hmm. that's just a demographic reality that has all sorts of complexities and implications. Um, I think we live in a time where, yes, uh, there is a sense in which not all men by any stretch of the imagination, but certain men do feel threatened by strong, thoughtful, independent women. And that does, that can play into the situation too. And so the first thing is to recognize, yep, okay, this is an actual reality that there's no point denying exists. The second thing I'd want to say is actually I think it's entirely, again, I personally resonate with the grief that comes in not having received the good things that marriage and family are, at least to this point in my life. You know, marriage is a good gift from God. It's a wonderful thing that he's given us, Um, the blessings and benefits that come along with it. There is a rightness in, in grieving not having been given that that gift, at least to this point, um, that it's entirely appropriate to to kind of mourn 
the loss of something that hasn't eventuated. You know, there's this thing called disenfranchised grief where you're you're grieving something that you've never had. You're grieving mm. the possibility that has never eventuated. Um, and I think we need to actually legitimize that grief, whether it's for singleness or infertility and all sorts of things. Mm. So there's reality. There's actually legitimizing grief in coming alongside people in it. But thirdly, I think I would want to say to single Christians who are living in that place that God's vision for your singleness is much more wonderfully profound than the church's vision has been, that it has taught you, and that your own vision for it has been. So even as you feel perhaps quite often that your singleness is a tragedy, in God's eyes it is not at all tragic. It's actually a wonderful blessing that he has given you, not just for your sake. I mean, blessings are not always happy, happy, joy, joy. There's all sorts of challenges and complexities that come with blessing because blessing is not just about how we feel about it. It's actually about how God has made us into a gift for others. Mm. Um, And as Christians, we actually believe that we are one with each other. And the whole, one of the main purposes of my book has to actually been to help both single Christians, but also the church as a whole see how vital unmarried people are in our midst to our understanding of who we are as Christ's body mm. and where we'll be spending eternity. And so my desire for single Christians is to see that, yes, it is entirely right for you to experience this grief, to feel sadness, but actually I want to encourage all of us, myself including, to try and transform our vision of our singleness in line with God's vision for it. Um, That's a long journey that takes commitment, but I think that actually is the paradigm shift that will actually help us to see that our singleness is not just something to be lamented, but something to be celebrated in the broader context of what God's doing in this world. So I want to ask one more question about our culture today that I think about a lot. Um, Our culture is so focused, not even the church, but our culture is so focused on sexuality and sexual identity. And I think often wondering about how the next generation will be able to sort this out. What, What thoughts do you have about how young people can manage these complex dynamics? Yeah, I mentioned earlier that I'm a bit of a pessimist and this is another thing that is weighing on my mind and my heart actually as I as I look at the state of broader kind of discourse in the world in the areas of sexuality and identity and what it is to be a human being. And I look at and it might be a bit unfair because the voices I hear coming from the, you know, young people these days. I'm no, officially no longer one of them. But the voices I hear tend to be the loudest voices. The loudest voices are not always the majority of the voices. Mm-hmm. So perhaps, you know, I'm being overly pessimistic, but I am concerned because I, I I do think how do we actually have help help younger people to have long, robust, informed engagement on the questions that they're wrestling with rather than how do we challenge their position, which I think at the moment is just our assumptions are unchallengeable. And so these are the implications of that. Um, My pessimism is countered by the fact that God is good and God is sovereign and he has also promised that he will build his church and the great gates of hell will not prevail against it. And so, you know, um, I have great confidence and optimism in that. 
But I think in terms of our Christian responsibility, it is going to be, it is incumbent upon the church and therefore incumbent upon the leaders of the church in this moment to better understand what is going on in the world around them, what the air that their young people are breathing. We have to recognise that the world that they are growing up in is markedly different to the world that we, you know, as I said, early 40s, completely different world in lots of ways to those in their early 20s. I have to understand their world. I have to understand the assumptions that they're working with in order to be able to bring the Bible to bear upon those assumptions and help them process those in correspondence and in conversation with God's word. Um, If we just kind of, if those who are leading churches and, and teaching Christians just sort of want to say no, no, no to all those things, we aren't going to actually be able to equip younger Christians to engage robustly in these ethical theological issues that are the dominating forces in our world today. Um, And so there is a responsibility there, an urgent one, I think, but there's also enormous opportunity. You know, the reality is these, from what I can see, so many young people are just despairing that these things that they are holding onto are not fulfilling them and not mm. bringing them. And so they're looking for the next thing, what goes further, what's going to be the silver bullet. We as Christians know life to the full is found in Jesus Christ alone. That is our conviction. And so there is an enormous opportunity for us to actually be able to bring the gospel to bear on these conversations, but we need to be able to engage with the conversations that they're having mm-hmm. in order to help them to see how Jesus actually is the answer that they're looking for. I'd like to talk for a moment about women in academic and professional contexts and how they can use this book. So how would you recommend listeners who are single and married engage with this book on their own? And also how might they um, share this book with their churches? Yeah, thank you. Um, and, I, I, you know, you said there for single and married. That's exactly right. This is not a book for singles. It's a book for all of us. Yeah, um, I was I was delighted a couple of days ago that um, somebody else that I'm, I'm having, doing an interview with, a married man, um, said, you know, he tweeted to me and said, I hadn't expected to love a book on singleness as much as I loved yours. And that was one of the most encouraging things mm-hmm. I've heard because if if married pastors are actually engaging with this, that's my whole desire in many ways um, because really my approach to this book is not here is the answer, please go away and apply it. It's actually here are the questions that we need to be grappling mm-hmm. with. Here are some here are some conversation starters. Here are some ideas to follow through on. Can we please talk about these things? Um, yeah. You know, the final chapter of the book is called Continuing the Conversation for a Reason. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I really want people to get to the end of this book and feel dissatisfied. They, they actually feel like, oh, my gosh, I don't know the full answer yet. I don't know how to do this. I need to be talking with others about it. And so... Um, Picking up the book, reading it, getting to the end and feeling dissatisfied is my goal for you, <laughs> particularly particularly for, for women, um, you know, given the question. Um, I, you know, I think there would be great value in um, 
people doing some book clubs mm-hmm. around the book, um, actually talking about it with each other on the way through. Um, there are parts in it which I've been deliberately provocative because parts that even I'm a little like, oh, am I willing to go here? I'm not quite sure, but I put it in because I actually think we need to have those questions. And even if the answer is, oh, no, she's gone too far there for these reasons, that's brilliant. Um, and so discussing it with each other I think is really important. I would love you if you're, a, you know, a woman who is theologically minded, um, who is a member of the church community. If you read my book and you feel challenged by it, buy a copy and give it to your pastor. So, Danny, how how can readers follow you and your work? What what's on the horizon? You talked about a, a second book, which sounds exciting. Yeah, I'm I'm trying to find, carve out the time to sort of write the proposal in the first couple of chapters for that. Um, my, the content is all in there in my head. It's just finding the time and the mm-hmm. focus, I think, to, to get it onto paper. Um, and I've also got a couple of other writing projects. Uh, doing some um, some commentary work, actually. I'm going to be spending some time in 1 and 2 Thessalonians and, and writing, um, uh, contributing to a, a new commentary series on that. So that's probably next year's agenda. But uh, in the meantime, I continue to do sort of all sorts of ongoing ad hoc reading and writing, particularly around singleness, sexuality, theological anthropology. So the way to to be engaging with me there is um, I'm on Twitter uh, mm-hmm. at Danny Treweek. Um, I've also got my website um, where there is sort of other resources, external resources I've been resources I've published, but also. I write regularly on my Substack, um, and there's a link from that on my website, dannytreweek.com. Um, and I also direct, I founded and direct a ministry called Single Minded. Um, that's singleminded.community. Uh, and we're a resourcing ministry that produces particularly um, events and conferences on all sorts of topics related to singleness that we then make available. Um, and so that would be another place to kind of go and engage more on a grounded level rather than academic level um, in the whole singleness realm. In the weeks since I've read Danny's book, I've found that my own perception of the broader conversation about singleness has been heightened, both in the church and in our culture. I'm really grateful for Danny's work in raising fresh questions about the meaning of singleness, and I hope you consider Danny's suggestion to read the book and then buy a copy for your church's pastor and staff. You can find a link to the book and a discount code in the show notes. And if you listen to the end of the credits, you'll get to hear a bonus from our podcast where Danny shares her own thoughts about the myth of the gift of singleness. The Women Scholars and Professionals podcast is hosted by me, Anne Boyd, and is a production of InterVarsity Christian Fellowship. We acknowledge that the opinions of our guests may not necessarily represent the ministry, doctrine, or policies of InterVarsity. You can find more information about our podcast and the other cool things we are doing at thewell.intervarsity.org. Our work is funded solely through the donations of our listeners and supporters. So if you enjoyed this podcast, you might consider joining our support team by donating even $10 per month. You can find out how to do this at our website. To ensure others will find and enjoy our podcasts as well, please consider rating and reviewing our podcast and sharing it with others. And as we close, listen in on this excerpt from my conversation with Danny. In a nutshell... Um, I don't agree with kind of the dominant modern contemporary view of this thing that we call the gift of singleness, which is not even 
in scripture. You know, it's coming from 1 Corinthians 7 where Paul talks about he wishes all were as he were, that is, unmarried, but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind, one of another. So he's talking about gifts, plural there, one of which presumably is the gift that he has, which I understand it to be that he has the gift of not being married. Mm -hmm. Now, we understand that primarily today as being this special spiritual super-powered injection of the Holy Spirit that allows you to be content as an unmarried person. Exegetically, theologically, I just don't get it. It's we we would never say that about marriage, that you need some special, you know, booster shot of the Holy Spirit to be content as a married person. Why do we say it about singleness? Why do we say that, you know, this one thing is the one aspect of my life as an unmarried person that the indwelling Holy Spirit, the ordinary work of God in my life, you know, ordinary in quotes, is insufficient mm-hmm. to do in me, that I need something extra. Um, why do we why do we suddenly kind of divorce those verses in 1 Corinthians 7 from our theological commitment to the fruit of the spirit one of which is self-control we are expected Mm -hmm. to be people of self-control but for some reason when it comes to self-control in sex oh well we we can't possibly be imagined to do that and to go back to what we were talking about earlier that is an inheritance of the reformation you know Mm -hmm. man and luther talked about sex as being this biological necessity that is as necessary as eating drinking going to the toilet and so if you it's the only way you can do life without kind of falling into heinous sexual sin without end. In Luther and then other reformers' mind is you need something special from God to mm. equip you to not sin in this way. And that was a that was responding in a historical moment to what was going on in the Catholic Church in institutional celibacy, and I understand where it came from. But when you look back further and particularly to the early church, this understanding of the gift of singleness as being this special spiritual empowerment is completely absent. It is not there. Mm-hmm. It's just not there. Um, what is there is that the that what Paul is talking about in 1 Corinthians 7 is marriage and unmarriage as both being gifted situations for the Christian. The, this is the life that God has assigned to you. He has gifted it to you. Um, and God has given you the grace to live that life for him. Mm-hmm. Um, so sorry, that that the way that I hold these things in tension is that actually our, our understanding is, is really very novel. It's very modern in the sense of at least, you know, 500 years old modern. Um, and it just, for me, involves us checking our theological minds at the door in a whole lot of ways to hold to the truth of that when there is actually a much more, I think, plain reading of the text, which is just simply, if you're single, it's because God is good and sovereign in your life and this is where he has you for the moment. Mm -hmm. If you're married, the same thing is true. Both of these are gifts from God. So that's, that's how I tend to look at it.